Welcome to another episode of Imperfect Leaders. We're the first and only podcast that invites the most powerful leaders in the country and asks them to be totally vulnerable and share their flaws, their imperfections, and of course, their wisdom. Our goal isn't to embarrass guests, rather it's to inspire our listeners to become more self-aware and to get an early start developing the exact leadership skills valued by the country's most admired organizations. If you like the show, we invite you to subscribe for free at www.imperfectleaders.com. And until then, sit back and enjoy the show. They really wanted to uh, make a point to me, and they charged me with a criminal continuing criminal enterprise, which carries life in prison. Because, like, who does that to themselves and puts themselves in a position where they, you know, because most people would not do something to jeopardize their life like that. So it's kind of trying to unravel um, psychologically how you got in that place. So, so excited to have Bernard Hurley on with me today, uh, a very successful businessman and philanthropist and one of the nicest guys I've ever met right down the block from me in Denver. Uh, but there was a time, Bernard, when you were down on your luck, uh, you were locked up, you were in prison, uh, but you bounce back big time and you demonstrate many of the leadership qualities that this podcast and perfect leaders is all about, particularly resilience and resourcefulness and vulnerability and authenticity and passion and goes on and on. Uh, but let's, let's first just talk about the big elephant in the room. How did you end up in prison? Well, you know, the, you know, my path of incarceration started off when I was young and, uh, I was incarcerated in the California Youth Authority when I was a kid, and I've been in and out of the California state prison system as well. And this is kind of the cycle of recidivism. And I was caught in this very vicious cycle of recidivism. And oftentimes I wouldn't stay out longer than a year. And then, uh, you know, it, it, uh, I ended up getting arrested by the, uh, by, the, by the FBI and the DEA for a significant drug charge. And, uh, and they kind of get tired of, of uh, your misbehavior after a while. And they, they really wanted to uh, make a point to me. And they charged me with a criminal, continuing criminal enterprise, which carries life in prison. Mm. So from the time that I got incarcerated I, uh, and picked up on the federal charge that I did the majority of my time on, I never got out after that. So I never got out on bail. I never got out on anything. And... Um, and, and, you know, I ended up in a maximum security federal prison with a 15-year prison sentence, which was a deal that I took for that charge. And, uh, and they were really done with me. I mean, my life was, you know, like in and out when I was young. And then the nature of uh, my offenses were, became, you know, uh, bigger over time. And, uh, and, yeah, they pretty much wrote me off. And uh, I ended up, you know, in a maximum security prison. So, and when that cell slammed shut, um, that first night when you're in that maximum security prison, um, and the FBI's the, the, the um, judicial system is just done with you, and they shut that door for the first time, and you know you're in there for the rest of your life, or at least you think you are, and then, then how do you feel and how do you deal with that? You know, you feel really hopeless, and, and typically, like in my case, you're kind of in solitary confinement because of the nature of your offense and they feel like you're you know a bad actor and they feel like they need to keep you isolated and it's a lot of time in solitude and a lot of time reflecting 
And I remember when I was in, uh, when I got arrested and I was in a holding cell in Eugene, Oregon, you know, and I, there was a window that I could look out and I would see, you know, pobos on railroad cars. And I would think to myself, I would be, give anything, right, to be one of those hobos on that, on that car instead of being where I was and facing the sentence that I, that I had. So, 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 but you somehow uh, turned it around. So first of all, where, you know, where did that inner strength come from? You know, I would, I would say that I, um, you know, when you have all that time to reflect like I did and reevaluate your life and then really inside go on a journey because like who does that to themselves and puts themselves in a position where they, you know, because most people would not do something to jeopardize their life like that. So it's kind of trying to unravel um, psychologically how you got in that place and then trying to figure out, you know, change is gradual and incremental. It doesn't happen overnight. So like I did a lot of reading and, and, you know, at the time when I was incarcerated, when I was younger, I was kind of the extreme part of the prison culture too. So it wasn't like as successful as a businessman as I am today. I mean, when I was in that other life, you know, it was, I was equally successful in that. And it's just, you know, reevaluating yourself and your moral compass and a lot of reading. And to be honest with you, when I got to Lompoc, they process you. And I was fortunate enough to get to get the interest of a, of a prison psychologist whose name was Paul Hofer. And I, I really wonder where he is today. I wish I could talk to him, just like my lawyer that represented me, Marianne Bockers, who saw something in me at that time that made her want to fight for me and keep me from getting the life sentence that the federal government was trying to give me. So there was a couple of people that played instrumental parts in my life, as well as my father and my family and my mother that were supportive um, during this this time of my life. If there's If there's not... There's somebody there that's a supportive, um, like a lawyer on the outside or a psychologist. Um, you say you read a lot, and certainly you have all the time in the world when you're in prison. But is reading a good start for somebody that just feels so dejected and lost and hopeless? I mean, is that a good way for them to start? Uh, my question is, how do you become more self-reflective if you've never really bothered doing it before? Well, you know, that's the unique opportunity if there is any opportunities from a period point, a period of time of being incarcerated is that you have a lot of time on your hands. So you can either waste that time by doing things that have no meaning and purpose, or you can spend that time reading, reflecting, you know, which was my case. You know, I was scared to death about what I was going to do when I got out of prison. I mean, I had no idea as do many men in prison I mean, their biggest fear is like they've got to get out, then they've got to function in society, they've got to pay bills and rent and potentially pay child support. And they get, you know, they have all of those pressures that go with everyday life, which you don't have when you're incarcerated. And when you're incarcerated, they really don't equip you prior to you getting released to deal with the with life's issues, like paying rent, paying child support. And like we had discussed earlier, Jeff, you know, oftentimes this is part of the revolving door. Because people get out without a lot of resources and help, and they're out here by themselves trying to make put a life together, and it's easier inside than it is outside. 
So subconsciously, they make some silly or foolish mistake to get themselves violated and, and sent back to prison where everything is taken care of for you. And so, because when, like when you get out, you know, you're walking up a hill and you, it's a long walk, right? I mean, to be able to get your life turned around and it's redemption, it's restoration, it's second chances, it's redeeming yourself in the eyes of the people that you impacted before you were incarcerated. It's, you know, it's a, it's a long walk that you have to take, but it's a walk that you can take, right? And, and the time that you spend in prison, if you spend it reflecting on, on change, and in my case, you know, I read a book in prison written by Al Gore called Earth in the Balance that piqued my interest in the environmental business. Like it was a new thing back then. And so I spent a lot of my time reading and trying to figure out what I was gonna do when I got out because I really had no idea. I was 35 years old when I got out and had nothing. And uh, you know, basically starting life all over again at 35. And, uh, and believe it or not, the, that book that I read, that book and another book that I read in prison that was written by Scott Peck, A Road Less Traveled, that uh, first line of the book says life is difficult, which it is at times, right? And it's how you deal with that difficulty that defines your character. And a lot of these lessons through reading, right? Because prison is a very dark place. And, uh, you know, trying to find light in that darkness is what you need to do because the environment is so oppressive and negative. So, you know, you have to read, you have to try to find things to do that are positive. And then really I spent the time um, inward, right? And doing a lot of figuring out how I got there. Like, how do you end up with a 15 year prison sentence? You know? Would, so, would, you, would you say also, I mean, you've given such a great description of really the core elements of resilience um, for anyone, you know, and you've done it in the most extreme example. So if you can do it, others can do it. Uh, that are coming out of prison, but other people in general that are on a leadership journey that feel defeated or feel crushed or feel, feel alone or isolated or shamed. Um, you know, you're just giving uh, an incredible roadmap. Um, but do you think, though, that when you read Al Gore's book, that that struck an internal nerve with aligned with your core values of the environment? Or is that is that an important piece of this equation? No, it is. I, I, um, you know, one thing that I noticed, um, you know, and I don't want to get, it, you know, political, but it's, um, you know, different administrations have different philosophies about different things. And, um, you know, there was some programs back in the 60s and 70s for the incarcerated, like SEVA and stuff, that provided direction and, and, and direction for people in life. And, and there used to be more rehabilitation when it comes to... Uh, incarceration than there is now but um you know the the you know the reading like trying to figure out uh you know the reading was a refuge for me and um and and light right as well as um exercise and other things to try to uh to try to stay positive in that environment so um, and, and also finding something that connected with your core values. Like yeah, yeah the, the environmental thing, I, I feel, I mean, I started an environmental company many, many years ago, right? Like it actually worked. I read that book. I got out of prison and, and actually that's what brought me to Colorado. I came yeah. to Colorado to take courses in the environmental business. I, I got out 
of prison. I went to a seminar at UC Berkeley. Well, well, let, me, let me back up. So how did you feel once you actually were able to walk out of prison? You didn't think you were going to get out, right? I thought I was never going to get out. So I thought I was going to die. So like getting out was a shock to me and, uh, and it was really overwhelming. And, uh, you know, you know, that's part of the reason, you know, the beauty of life is, uh, and the beauty of, for everybody, is the ability to recreate yourself in a meaningful way. And I would say that I moved to Colorado and recreated myself after I got out of prison. Yeah, and, and that's, that's amazing. And you have said it more beautifully than almost anyone that I've ever heard speak about it, just the, the recreating yourself in life. And I, I imagine that it doesn't happen all at once, you know, so what were some of the incremental steps that you took, you know, in your first day, your first week, your first year out of prison? Well, like when I, when I first got out, I was so scared to not go back. Right. It was like, I was, I, I know, I mean, that was such a long time and it, uh, it was very, uh, you know, I felt very fortunate to survive the experience and, um, and I did not want to go back. So, you know, when I got out, I, I ended up rolling back to the Bay area where I grew up and, and uh, I, I moved over to the other side of the Bay. So I tried to remove myself from the environment, right. That I was in before where people, you know, they only look at you a certain way, right. Because your history, it's hard to recreate really negative or some negative history and have people that have looked at you in a certain light for a long time be able to look at you differently. And that was part of like second chance, right? Like, like Colorado was a second chance for me. Many things that I'm involved in are second chances and in some cases, third chances. I mean, from the neighborhood that I chose to settle in to the project that I'm doing and, and what it represents in Denver, you know, an opportunity for second chances. And, uh, and really through my project that I'm doing, you know, I hope to show what's possible, yeah. right? To be able to achieve and to, and to be an example to others, right? Through this, I mean, I'm getting ready to do, to go from where I went from and getting ready to do, you know, almost a billion dollar development project, downtown Denver, and then, and show people that it's good business to be kind mm -hmm. and to give people second chances because I have not changed who I am. Right. I mean, it, the bad parts I've changed, but I mean, all the goodness that I always had inside of me, it just comes out. And, and, and part of that experience from prison, the strength, you know, the, the, cause you do, I mean, that experience brings a strength to your character to show you, I mean, you can endure something like that and survive. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and then right now I'm so driven to show others what's possible. Right. And, and, and what is Bernard? Tell me, Tell the listeners a little bit about this amazing project that you're doing in Denver and what, what, you know, what, what will this be when it's finished? So we, you know, I, I, I bought a, my parents helped me purchase a building in 1997 when right after I, you know, I was in Denver for about five years after I had started my environmental business and it's where I operated my environmental company out of. And so, and it was in the Rhino neighborhood, which back then was junkyards, you know, heavy industrialized areas, and the real estate was cheap. And just right. for the listeners in Denver, Rhino is an area of Denver that's definitely up and coming. It's already arrived. 
it's already arrived, but but 20 years ago, it, it had not arrived. And, and there were a lot of people thought that it would never arrive. So it's kind of similar to my story. It's like, it's a complete second chance neighborhood. And so what I did is I ran my environmental company out of there. And, and then I would buy the adjacent properties for very cheap over time. Like some of the property that's worth $300 a square foot today, I paid $10 a foot for. So weren't you nervous? I mean, at the time, you probably felt like that was kind of risky. Well, it was, it was risky, but, but what I did is since I didn't have credit, right, and I didn't have a lot of things that others have, I would work and I would pay cash for the property that I would buy. And so, you know, I didn't have bank loan. Well, I did on, on the first piece of property I bought with my parents who took a loan out. But all the property that I bought after that, I bought with the proceeds that I made from my environmental company. And so I just, it took me 20 years to assemble all of this property in this neighborhood. And, and being somebody who believes in second chances, I, I looked at the river, I looked at the proximity to downtown, and then being in the environmental business, I mean, this also is a Brownsfield neighborhood. So which even makes it more meaningful to me because this is a neighborhood that was thrown away. And, uh, and now it's been revived and we've done a lot of the environmental work in the neighborhood, bringing it back. And uh, I sit on the boards and, and uh, I'm the president of, of the, or the chairman of the general improvement district in the neighborhood. And so we've collectively, that's what's so amazing about this city, right? And, and, and this community of second chances that somebody like myself can be a leader in this community and be an example to others and lead and show it's possible. And through this project, we're going to do workforce development for the formerly incarcerated. We're, we're, we're creating opportunities for new Americans. We're trying to show other developers what's possible. We, I have an amazing partner in the John Buck Company that also has social values aligned with mine. And we're going to try to show other developers what's possible to do, like with job creation, creating opportunities for new Americans. I mean, taking a blighted area and rebirthing it, right? Even the Platte River, right? is getting a second chance right now, the river that the property sits on. I mean, this is all such a second chance story and an amazing story. And my hope is to be able to show others what's possible. And uh, because you can come from facing life or, or you know, being locked up in federal prison. And, 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 you know, if you have the will, determination and drive, you can change your life. And, you know, like Denver, what's amazing about Denver is, and I don't know if I would have tried this in another city if it would have been possible, but clearly the city and county of Denver has been a partner of mine through like the workforce development and helping the ex-offenders and, and working on the project. And we're going to have like phase one is 330,000 square feet of office, 212 apartments, 30,000 square feet of residential, all of the highest quality. And then... We're doing amazing social stuff, right? Like in the, the restaurants, I've partnered with another friend of both of ours to be able to create opportunities for new Americans and immigrants that come into this country. I mean, the majority of my staff are, are new Americans and immigrants. And like we make a point of trying to bring on people and give them a chance and an opportunity to change their lives like I have. And, and same thing with the formerly incarcerated. Uh, you know, it's like, we went to our general contract. We got them to agree. Like right now, we're tracking 20 or 22% minority participation on the project, creating apprenticeship positions for the formerly incarcerated, because really just trying to give people hope and a path forward and then show what's possible.
And do you look for people that that uh, share your core values? And do you think that that actually makes a difference if you bring in all these diverse, talented uh, people and put them together in one city or one neighborhood, even? And it, you know, and, and if they are aligned with their core values, does that make a difference? You know, I hear a lot about the importance of those soft skills, but you're actually doing it. You tell me. Oh. It makes all the difference in the world. I've got myself surrounded by people that think the same way I do. And it's not, I mean, there's, Denver is an amazing city. I mean, and, and uh, you know, that's why I say, I don't know if this would have been possible, like my path forward somewhere else, just because, you know, on a lot of initiatives that I've had, the city, the city has been a partner and the city knows about my background. And, uh, you know, and I they think- they were supportive anyway. So, I mean, <laughs> You must have been nervous, and I know that you haven't lived in a lot of different cities, but does your gut tell you that the people and the culture of Denver actually made it possible and even encouraged you to do what you've done? Absolutely. I 100% believe that. Mm. Uh, because, I mean, they become friends, right? It's like, it, because we all feel like we're doing this collectively, right? We all, we all want the same thing. Right? We want to create amazing places. We want to collaborate. We want to create opportunities. We want to show people what's possible. We want to show people that that don't have how like that there's a path for them, right, and a future for them. Mm -hmm. And you know, like I, I'm really humbled even by by Jeff. You know, I just I want to say I'm even humbled by being on this podcast with you. And uh, and I appreciate you know you reaching out to me and 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 this is an amazing experience for me in itself. Well, we and I and my listeners are extremely um, gratified that you're on. And what advice, you know, I'll wrap it up with this because you're one of the most inspiring. And I talked about some of the leadership qualities, you know, resilient, authentic, vulnerable, and extremely successful with this new billion dollar project. But what advice do you have for other people that are almost assuredly know, experiencing these terrifying challenges or fears and anxieties. Maybe they're not in prison and maybe they are, you know, but they're definitely uh, in a dark place or they're definitely feeling like they're boxed in or they failed and they're feeling shame. You know, what advice do you have for them as they continue to move forward in life? Keep walking, like pick yourself up and keep walking and keep walking and keep walking and don't let, because to that point, when I read that book that Scott Peck wrote, A Road Less Traveled, the first line of the book is, life is difficult. And life is. And you have to accept that. And you have to stop stop being a victim, right, of, of your circumstances and just embrace those difficulties and just, you know, deal with them because it's not going to be the first time you're going to face adversity. What do, you mean, what do you mean embrace the difficulty? What does that mean? What that means is like, don't let it crush you, but find a way to solve the problem, right? And don't give up. Like if, if your first solution doesn't work, try another solution, but don't give up because there's always a solution to the problem. It might not be the most palatable, but there is a solution to solving all problems. And you just cannot give up and you just need to keep going. Bernard Hurley, thank you so much for your time. Our listeners are immensely gratified. Oh, thank you so much, Jeff. I appreciate the opportunity to be able to talk, and I'm humbled by this. Thank you. Wow. What uh, a beautiful message. I can't imagine anyone, aside from Bernard Hurley, that could deliver a message of resilience so poignantly 
with such uh, an authentic uh, story of being in solitary confinement, not only prison, but solitary confinement for a couple of years. And his message of resilience, of finding your true north and identifying with your core values is not only something I think that would be useful for someone in prison or recently incarcerated, but really someone all the way, you know, up to getting their Stanford or Harvard MBA that's on a CEO track, because all of us, all human beings are going to experience loss and pain and failure uh, and shame. And, you know, I love his message about keep on going each day, you know, keep moving forward and identify with your core values. Thanks for listening, guys, and I will see you next week.